As Peter said, my name is Marco. I see a couple of faces here that I don't know, so it would be good to say hi to you afterwards. Do hang around long enough to say hello. Um, Well, the start of a new year, our first service together of 2019, and uh, and I wonder how everyone's doing. I wonder how it lands on you that uh, that it's the start of something new. Uh, Of course, in one sense, it's just another day, Just, uh, just another day like any other, just another week, just another year. But the reality is, whether there's any logic to it or not, we do, um, at the start of something new, there there is a sense of hopefulness, a sense that things might be different uh, in a better way than they were before, anticipation of what's to come, or perhaps for some, fear of what's to come, excitement at the challenge ahead, uh, desire for new adventure, and sometimes for some, a weariness of heart that you've just made it through the whole of last year with all its trials, all its difficulties, and, and now it just starts all over again. Change is exciting, change is difficult. Change can bring great joy, and it can bring great pain. And in some sense, uh, all of us here are at the start of something new. I know a handful here starting new jobs, either who have recently started new jobs or will be doing so soon, including me, uh, a handful new to town, including me, Jim and Eve moving in 10 days' time, Paul and Emma back in town for not too long, um, Joel finishing school and looking ahead to, to a new chapter of his life, new schools for all of my kids, and of course for all of us, KCC is new, Kenilworth Community Church is new. We've sensed the Lord leading together to to this church, some for many years, some for a few weeks. But for all of us, it's a new thing. It's a new season. Well, this is just where, in a sense, the disciples were the night of this scene that John records for us and that Claire read for us. Much had changed. They'd been called by Jesus uh, three years before this. He had changed their lives. They'd followed him. They'd learned from him. He had changed everything, but not in the way they expected Israel still lay under Roman occupation. They were still a downtrodden people. They still suffered. They still hoped. But now, this night, something in Jesus' manner had changed. After three years of public ministry, John tells us just before this passage, uh, towards the end of chapter 12, that Jesus hid himself from the people. He drew aside. He sought solitude and the fellowship only of those closest to him only of those most dear to him. He knew his hour had come. Verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. He knew the cross was just hours away. Beatings and savage whippings even closer. But the joy of his Father's presence lay just the other side of it all. And as he faced it all, the disciples sensed that something was to change for them too. What did he most want his disciples to know? In those few hours, what did he say to them? Of all the things he could have pressed into their hearts that night, what was front, what was top of the list, what was foremost on his mind? Well, what would be on your mind? Parents, grandparents, spiritual fathers and mothers, If you knew what Jesus knew at that moment, and John takes great care through this passage, you will have noticed to distinguish between what Jesus knew at that time 
what the disciples knew at that time and what they would only come to understand later. What would you as parents want your children, those in your care, to understand? That you know they cannot really understand in that moment. When all is about to change, they won't understand it. It will feel to them like failure. It will feel to them that all is lost, the dream is shattered. Hope is gone and light has turned to dark. What would you want them to know in that moment? Verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He'd walked with these men for three years. He'd loved them. He'd called them to himself. This passage says, having loved his own who were in this world. He now loved them. So there's a, there's a reality to the love that has passed and a reality to the love he feels for them and shows to them now and going forward. He called them not because they were special, not because they were unusually gifted, not because they had anything to offer him or were in any way worthy of the call. He called them of his own gracious love. He lived with them, he fished with them, he ate with them, he patiently taught them and corrected them, he bore with their failings and misunderstandings. He had loved them. And now, he loved them to the end. How? In what way? Well, John goes on to describe how Jesus took off his outer garments and with a towel around his waist, took up a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter was shocked. We read, I think it's verse... Verses 6 and 8. Lord, you shall never wash my feet, he says. And rightly so. Foot washing was a task for the lowest of the low. For slaves. In fact, many Jewish rabbis even forbade Jewish servants to wash the feet of their masters. It was deemed too far beneath them. This was for Gentile slaves only. It was dirty and smelly. Think about it. There were no cars. There was no Uber. These folks walked everywhere wearing sandals, sharing dusty roads with dogs and donkeys and sewage channels. Think about what they walked through every day. Think about what condition their feet were in at the end of the day. It was a filthy job. Peers did not wash one another's feet. And most certainly a social superior never, never washed the feet of someone lower than them in the social scale of things. Fathers would never have washed the feet of their children. Masters would never have washed the feet of their servants. And very certainly rabbis would never have touched the feet of their disciples. And now, to add to it, they had just walked to Jerusalem for the the Passover, sharing roads with tens of thousands of others making the same journey, and tens of thousands of animals being herded from across the country for sacrifice. Think of what they had walked through. But Jesus puts aside his garments takes up the towel in the basin and begins to wash. That Jesus, their master, their teacher, the one Peter calls Lord, would do this, it is a shocking example of humble service. And they were shocked. It would be, if you'll forgive me, it would be like Prince William coming to your house with a plunger to unclog your blocked toilets. Shocking. But in what way is it a display of love? The clue is in verse 7. Jesus says, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. 
But didn't Peter understand exactly? That's why he was so shocked. This was all out of order. This shouldn't be that way. But what Peter didn't understand was why Jesus was washing his feet. It was a symbolic washing by which Jesus pointed forward to the cross. In just a few hours, he would lay aside not only his garments, but his life. He would take upon his hands not just the filth of Peter's dirty feet, but the stench of Peter's sin. In fact, the Bible tells us he would become sin for Peter. And Peter didn't understand. But Jesus did, and later the disciples would too. In fact, that's the whole reason John wrote this gospel. We'll see in in chapter 20. Quickly turn there. Verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John later recorded this intentionally for you and I, that you may believe. And that wasn't just John's intention, it was Jesus's too. I'll read to you from John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus praying for his disciples, says, My prayer is not for them alone, that is, the twelve who were with him that night. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The Holy Spirit inspired this message intentionally, specifically, for you and for me. The Bible tells us specifically that. Do you believe that? Do you know Jesus' love in this way? Not just to know about his love, but to know his love. Peter was ready, very willing, to call Jesus Lord, Teacher, Master. And Jesus is both those things. But before he is Lord and Teacher, he is first Savior. He is first the one who washes you. And who washes me. You'll see in verse 13 he says, Jesus that is, You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. But the whole point of this acted parable seems to be, before I am teacher and Lord, I first need to be the one who washes you. But Peter says, you will never wash my feet. This is normal human pride, isn't it? We, we all respond this way. None of us want somebody else to see our dirt, much less get close to it, much less somebody who we esteem, who we respect, who we admire. We don't want them to know about our dirt. We want to clean ourselves up first, don't we? You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus says, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you can't wash yourself. Unless Jesus washes you, there is a stain of sin that can be washed by none but Jesus. Lord and teacher he is. The word who was with God in the beginning, he is. The word who was God. The word through whom all things were made, John has told us. The one in whom is life. The one who changed water into wine, who healed the sick. Who fed thousands from five loaves and two fish who walked on water, who gave sight to the blind, who raised Lazarus from the dead. This Jesus, who sits now at the right hand of his Father on the throne of heaven, 
Jesus who upholds the universe by his will. Jesus with 10,000 upon 10,000 warrior angels at his command. Jesus the conqueror of death, the Lord of life, the high king of heaven. He is first and insists that he will be first. Jesus who washes your feet, who washes you and me clean of our sin. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. About to depart from his disciples, knowing that they wouldn't understand. Knowing that he would send the Spirit, but they didn't know what that meant either at that point. And it would be some time until they experienced that reality. Knowing the fear they would feel. Knowing that they would feel alone. Knowing that they would feel this one who they thought was the Messiah turned out to be just some other guy. More than anything, before anything, Jesus wants you to know that he loves you. And as you look ahead to 2019, whether with excitement and ambition to achieve much or with apprehension or fear, know this before all else. Before Jesus commissions his disciples and through them the church and us to bear witness to him, before all of that, Jesus is first the one who loves you. Jesus knew Peter would deny him. That was coming just hours later. He knew. Jesus knows everything that lies in store for you tomorrow and this week and for the year and the years ahead. And the first thing he wants you to know in 2019 is he loves you. Jesus loves you. Now maybe there are some of you here who don't know that. Maybe there are some of you here who've heard about that. You've heard about the love of Jesus. Well, my prayer, and I know the prayer of many of us here tonight for you, is that you would know that to be true. Not know about it, that you would know it. And if this evening that is true, if you do know in your knower for the first time, or in a new way, the love of Jesus, do come and talk to me or Peter afterwards. And we will help you. Well, I wonder what you think you need for this year. What's wrong in the world, or at least what's wrong in your world? And maybe more specifically, who or what is going to put it right? Well, you see, the Jews, the nation of Israel, had been waiting for the Messiah for a thousand years. The Messiah was the great king foretold by the prophets. The king whose throne would endure forever, who would subdue all enemies and establish Israel in peace and prosperity forever. The Messiah was the one to come who would make everything right. Life would be good when he came. In fact, interestingly, the most respected scholars on John think that that passage out of John 20 that I read a moment ago uh, should not be understood as an answer to the question, who is Jesus? In other words, let me just read it again so you can... Make sure I'm not saying anything out of line. Uh, Chapter 20, uh, verse 30 and 31. Well, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You could hear this this as an answer to one of two questions. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. Or, who is the Messiah? It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. 
and the leading scholars on John hear it the second way. And I think the context of the book backs that up. The question, and it matters, and we'll get to that in a moment, is not who is Jesus, but who is the Messiah? Right from the beginning, in, uh, in John's prologue um, that Jim preached for us just before Christmas, um, we're told that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, where, where Christ is just the, it's the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah, the Hebrew word Messiah. And then the very first character that we meet, apart from Jesus that is, the first character we're introduced to in the Gospel is John the Baptist. And what's the very first thing we're told about him? They want to know who he is, and he says quite emphatically, I am not the Messiah. I am not he. No, John says. He points to Jesus and says, he's the Messiah. And Andrew followed him, spent the day listening to him, and then went to call his brother uh, Simon. We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. They were looking for the Messiah. Chapter 4, verse 25, the Samaritan woman at the well talking with Jesus says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She tells all her friends and neighbors about this man, Jesus, who spoke with her at the well. They urged him to stay a few days. And so he did. And then... Chapter 4, verse 42, it's missing in the NIV, but in the original Greek, the word is there. It says, we know that this man really is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. In chapter 6, Peter confesses, verse 69, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Chapter 7, the people of Jerusalem, (coughs) excuse me, the people of Jerusalem debate whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And in chapter 10, they confront him directly asking, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. You, you see, the, people, the, the question people were asking was not who is Jesus, but who is the Messiah? Who will put everything right? Where is the one God promised? Who will come? The one who will come and make good on all God's promises and sort everything out. Where is he? Who is he? When is he coming? And so John wrote his gospel. The Holy Spirit inspired this gospel. Not to answer the question, not to give the answer, Jesus is the Messiah, but rather the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the Savior of the world, is Jesus. But the problem is that Israel largely misunderstood the promises about the coming Messiah. They wanted a Messiah for sure, but they wanted a military and political leader who would conquer their enemies, raise Israel to international glory, assure sustained economic prosperity, In other words, they wanted a Messiah who would bring the good life, as they envisaged it. And it's no different today, is it? Everyone has a vision, their vision, of the good life. And each one of us, if we're honest, funny phrase that if we're honest, I'm learning to be British. Um, What else would you be? Anyway, if we're honest... We will admit that there are things we think we need to be happy in 2019. Things we need in order for 2019 to be a good year, to achieve whatever we have in mind, uh, to achieve for the year. We even think we know what we need as we put out from the the safety of the harbor in this ship called KCC. We think we know what we need in order to have a safe and uh, successful journey and arrive safely at our destination. But Jesus 
just as he wanted to press into the hearts of his disciples this night, this moment, his love for them, on the hour of his departure, so he also gave them all they needed for the journey. They didn't understand at the time, but they did later. And John and Jesus want you and me to know. Jesus loves his own. Jesus loves you. If you will let him make you his own by submitting to his washing, and he gives you all you need. Listen to, the, listen to his words. Verse 8. Oh, I'm at chapter 20. Chapter 13, verse 8. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. No part with me. Think of all that is contained in that, to have part with Jesus, to be one with him, to have fellowship with him, to be united to him. Look again at verse 1. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. You see, he had come from the Father's side to this world on a rescue mission. And he did it willingly, joyfully, from a heart overflowing with free, unconstrained grace. But he longed to be back with his Father. And as his hour approached, and the time of his return to the Father approached, so he looked with love upon his own, and looked through the cross, through the washing he would perform, to prepare us for the Father's presence. To have part with Jesus means his Father is your Father. He washed you to make you fit for the presence of his Holy Father. His home is your home. He was returning to the Father. Verse 3. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. He was returning to the home that he had always known, to the presence of perfection the perfect love of the Trinity. This is your home. This is what it means to have part with Jesus. He washes you. He makes you clean. He wants you to know His love for you. His Father is yours. Your Father. You are fit for the presence of God. And His dwelling place is yours. Not only that... Verse 14, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. What he did isn't the point. It's why he did it. And he's told us that. He did it because he loved his own. His own. That's what he calls you. His own. So when he says, I have set you an example... You should, do, uh, you should do for one another as I have done for you. Not what I have done for you, as I have done for you. His own are your own. Each one of us here are the sons and daughters of God. Jesus calls us his, his brothers and sisters, his own, his own beloved. And he gives us to one another. To have part with Jesus means his own are my own and your own. 
To have part with Jesus means we belong. We have a family. We have an eternal home. We have a destiny. And we have a family here and now to share it with. More than that, he says something surprising in verse 16, which I don't think would have made sense to the disciples this night. He says, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Now that would have made perfect sense. They would have known exactly what that meant. But the next bit is a bit odd. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, where does that come from? How does that fit into this scene? Well, I don't think they understood at the time. What's a, what is the message here? The message is what they would come to understand later. The message of the Messiah who came not to restore Israel to, um, to power and glory and wealth and prosperity. The Messiah who came to wash the stain of sin off the souls of his people. They would understand this message soon. His gospel is now your message. To have part with Jesus means we share in this work that he came to do of making known the Father's love. As Jesus pointed to the Father supremely through the cross, so we point to Jesus and to the cross. His gospel is now your message. Verse 17, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not um, an expert in Greek grammar by any means, but the, the tense here doesn't quite capture it. This seems to suggest you will be blessed if you do these things. What, 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 is, what he's saying is, you, happy are you. You are happy. Blessed here means supremely happy. Uh, in absolute bliss. Total happiness. Happy are you. Happy are you. It's not do these things and then you will be happy. Happy are you. Jesus' glory, the Father's glory, becomes your happiness. Why? Because his washing doesn't just remove the stain, it changes you. And so as we relate to his Father as our own, as we look forward to his home as our own, as we love one another, his own, as our own, as his gospel becomes our message. So it brings him glory because others get to know about him and and we are transformed ever more into the likeness of the Son. His glory becomes our happiness. To have part with Jesus means all these things. It means we share in the love of the Father. We share in the mission of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. We belong. We belong to Him. Of all the things the world thinks it needs, of all the messiahs the world can look to, more money, more power, more influence, better laws, better whatever, better medical technology, better, I don't know what, of all the things the world could look to that it thinks will bring a better life. Jesus, in the hour of his departure, as the the disciples face a new season of their lives, commissioned by him, empowered by his spirit, to be his ambassadors, and we follow in that tradition, 
we each one individually, as a church, we follow in the footsteps of these apostles. Their mission is our mission. But first, their Savior is our Savior. The one who washed their feet is the one who washed, washed our hearts. And at the beginning of this year, as we look out on the year and all the hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties and everything that's on our mind about what might be this year, for us individually, for us as families, for us as a church, before we talk about plans and strategies and visions and, and all that stuff that we will get to, because it's also important, but before we get to any of that, Jesus wants you to hear this. He loves you. You are His own, and He loves you. And He has given you everything you need. You are fit for the presence of the Father. You are fit for a home in heaven. You belong to one another, church. Look around you. This is your family. Some who can't be with us here tonight, they are our family. They are our brothers and sisters. We belong to one another. His gospel is our message. His glory is our happiness. The message of the soul-washing Savior has been put on our lips. Happy are we. Blessed are we, church. Because this is true of us. He is our soul-washing Savior who loves us and has given us all we need. Amen.